In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I speak with a man who's had a fascinating career in the military interrogating al-Qaeda prisoners during the Gulf War. James Rosone has written about his experiences and gone on to become a prolific writer of military thrillers with a portfolio of 24 books with more in the pipeline and is now one of Amazon's top 100 authors. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? James Rosane, welcome to Over the Bonnet. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Let's talk about your background. You've got a military background. You started in the National Guard. What happened there? Why did you join the National Guard? You know, so that's kind of an ironic story. When I was 18, I was a freshman in college, and honestly, I had no idea what I was doing with my life. I was just not doing good in school, didn't really understand it. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go join the military because I always wanted to join the military. So initially, I was going to join the Marines of all places. And as fate would have it, they were out to lunch. <laughs> and so I talked with an Army recruiter instead and went did my ASVAB scores. And my uncle at the time, he pulled me aside like, James, now nah, you don't want to go into the active Army. He, was, he worked as an active duty National Guard member uh, in our state. And he's like, come join the Guard. I know everyone in this place. You know, I'll, I'll make sure you'll be all set. And then you can still pursue your college. You go away to training for seven months get that out of your system, then you'll go back to college a little more focused and, and, and I'll help move you through the ranks if you want to go in the net, stay with the National Guard realm. And so that's what I, I did. And it was great. You know, I mean, I got a lot of really good military experience. Um, I volunteered for every, uh, everything I could under the sun. So my entire summers when I was, when I was in between college semesters, you know, for the whole summer, I'd volunteer and I'd be gone doing military stuff all summer long. Um, I uh, did a lot of just anytime there was an opportunity to, to go do something, I, I volunteered to go do it. It would be individual augmentee to go different places. And I enjoyed it. I was able to get my college degree at the same time and uh, just really had a, a good time. For me, it was a good experience. I was in a, a self-propelled artillery unit, so those big old uh, Paladin 155-millimeter uh, um, shell guns. That was a lot of fun. Uh, my job I used to work is doing communications, so I set up retrans sites, and then I got cross-trained to be a forward observer. And so, you know, you get to call on the artillery strikes. And uh, most of our job usually just had us roving around in a Humvee with four antennas on and setting up little little retrans sites in the middle of nowhere, usually somewhere between the forward observers and the artillery units. So we're kind of out on our own a lot, and, and it, was a, it was a fun experience, but I really enjoyed it a lot. Sounds like a boy's own adventure. Oh, it was. As a young kid, it was great. You know, from 18 to 24, it was time of my life. What was the reasoning for wanting to join the military? You know, it's a good question. I guess I just had that bug in me, I suppose. I mean, my grandparents uh, had all fought in the military. Um, you know, they've been in the one was in the Army and one was in the Navy. Uh, both ironically fought in the, in the Pacific. Uh, one of my grandpas, he was uh, in the army, but he was actually up in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, fighting the Japanese up there. Wow. Places. Totally different theater of war uh, to fight up on Attu Island and a bunch of the other small little island chains up there. Um, but I guess for me, it was, you know, being able to serve your country and serve your community and being able to, uh, you know, 
travel, see some different things, get to blow things up and shoot cool guns, <laughs> you know, all that fun kind of stuff that boys like to go do. And I, I guess, you know, when you don't, when you're younger and you don't have a firm fixed future of what you want to do, the military is a good option because it helps to give you a little bit of purpose, a little bit of drive, a little, you know, some education and then some discipline and, I think in that respect, it's pretty good. Do you think more kids be, should be looking at the military as an option for a career? Well, I think whether it's, whether they make it a career or not, I certainly think they should go in and do a four or six year stint. If not active duty, then definitely in the reserves because it's going to give you a, a job skill and it's going to give you some discipline, some money in your pocket. And if nothing else, it's going to help maybe give you a different perspective on what you want to do. Because part of knowing what you want to do in life is being exposed to a lot of different career options, a lot of different choices. And I think the more you're exposed to those, those types of things, the, you know, the better you're going to make a decision on what you want to do with your life. You talk about your grandparents being involved in wartime activities. Did you get to yeah. talk to them much about it? Um, so I didn't get to talk to my grandma, my grandfather on my uh, father's side as much. He passed away when I was, I think, 11. Uh, so I didn't get to talk with him about his military time because at the time I was too little. And I only saw him. He lived in Tennessee and I lived in Wisconsin. And so I only saw him twice a year, usually once or twice a year. So I didn't see him as much as I saw my other grandpa. My, uh, my other grandpa, I talked with him about the military quite a bit. He ended up passing away, I think, when I was uh, 30. So I got to know him a lot more um, and, you know, got to talk with him a lot, see a lot of his old photos of what it was like in Alaska. And, you know, again, he didn't see a terribly lot of the fighting and things that went on in World War II. There was only a couple of times he saw any action, and that was usually when they cornered the, the Japanese in a cave and they wouldn't come out. Um, you know, his biggest challenges he was telling me about was the weather was surviving the alaskan winters and the weather and how they had to deal with that and you know because he's from chicago you know it wasn't used to that kind of weather uh he says that was the biggest thing and uh he said he got to fly as a, a door gunner on uh was it i think it was a b-24 liberator a couple times um you know one of those side gunners positions and do some of that when they had some bombers based out of there and yeah, I mean, it was interesting just hearing his life and hearing his military experience in comparison to mine. Uh, you know, he came, he went down to my military graduation and uh, down in Fort Leonard Wood and was a part of that and able to see that. That was kind of neat to have him there. And uh, then when my wife and I got married, we got married on McDill Air Force Base. And so he came down there here for that and got to see the Air Force Base that I was working on and all the other stuff like that. So was he pretty proud of you? He was. He was proud that I went into the military. Um, I was the only grandchild to go into the military on uh, both sides of the family. Uh, everyone else uh, just wasn't for them. So it was my grandparents and then me. My dad got drafted into Vietnam. He was, uh, he was in college at the time, but he got drafted. And when he went to report uh, during his medical examination, they determined that he had diabetes. And so they, you know, four after him, made him ineligible. And uh, he's like, oh, wow, okay. So he went to the doctor and they did a diabetes test. And I'm like, you don't have diabetes. I don't know what they're talking about. He's like, okay. <laughs> so he, he got drafted, but he got denied because of the medical. And then it turns out he didn't have it. So 
yeah, I was the only one in the family since uh, since that was World War II that had joined the military and then ultimately ended up serving in the war. He dodged a bullet. What did your father go and end up going to do? He was a, in computer science is what he went into school. So at school in the 60s, he was studying mathematics and, mus- and music. And then he ended up going into, you know, early days of the computers and, and working that. And he's still working on that now. What an influence that must have been, having a father that was a, a musician and a mathematician. What sort of influence yeah, was that on you? Yeah, he was very much into, like, music. He was very, like, very good with uh, the piano. And he could play piano and guitar really good. He had one of those natural ears where he could hear someone play a song, a pretty complex piano song, and then he could just sit down and play it. Uh, he was very, very close to, like, a concert-level pianist my entire life. I uh, was very, very good with that and then with uh, uh, guitar as well. Um, so it was kind of, but he was he was also very much a workaholic. My dad, just like his dad, was very much a workaholic. My my grandfather on, on that side of the family was Brainiacs. <laughs> you know, he, was, uh, he got his master's degree from MIT University. Uh, he actually worked on the Manhattan Project. Uh, so shortly after World War II, he went, he went to work. Uh, in there, in that, in that group with the atomic energy stuff, and uh, worked at Oak Ridge and Los Alamos, and was part of the team developing the, the hydrogen bomb and uh, a whole slew of stuff. And he worked in Goodyear Atomic with them for, gosh, probably 35, 40 years before he retired. Um, so yeah, they're all a long line of super, super smart guys. Well, you've got an MBA in uh, science. Uh, you're following the trend. Was that the degree you got when uh, you were in the uh, National Guard? Or did you go so, on and study later? Yeah, no, I went on and studied later. So when I was in the Guard, I got a, a Bachelor's of Science. In, well, political Science was my major, and then another degree in International Studies. And then when I was in the Air Force, uh, they paid for me to get my MBA. And then when I uh, was working as contractor at U.S. European Command in Germany, um, I got accepted into a, a part-time uh, graduate program at Oxford. And so then I was commuting back and forth from Germany to Oxford uh, to do a master's of science program in uh, major program uh, major program management, uh, basically working on large projects, programs, and budgets and things like that. That's an interesting thing. How did you use your degree then, just in the military? Well, so in the military, they're always they're always wanting you to get more education. Just just generally makes you a smarter person. Um, so that, at least in the Air Force, they would push you on that. Because I was I started Army and then I went Air Force. I was originally going to go as an officer and then I decided to go enlisted and. Um, and so the military pays, they'll pay for your education. Uh, so even if you have a bachelor's degree, if you want to take additional credits, they'll continue to pay for that. So for me, I wanted to get my MBA the next, next level up. So I figured, well, why not? I'll take these courses at night and on the weekends and let the military continue to pay for it. And so that's what I did. I managed to get that uh, second degree. And then, um, a number of years later when I was uh, working in Germany, uh, I, I'd actually been looking at several PhD programs and a couple people said, why don't you look at this particular Oxford program and just apply and see if you can get in. And I applied on a whim and I got in. <laughs> and so like, all right, well, no, I'm not turning down a chance to go to Oxford and, uh, you know, went there and, and studied there. And I really enjoyed that a lot. I, I had a couple opportunities to pursue a PhD at Oxford, uh, one in the business department um, and then one in the computer science department. And uh, ultimately, I ended up turning both of them down um, simply because of the opportunity costs. You know, when you pursue a, a PhD, you know, it's it's four years of just full-time effort. 
and you have to look and say, okay, so if I'm off work for four years to pursue this study, what is my opportunity cost? You know, like I'm, you can't, you're not really able to work most of the time because you're, you're, you're reading for your dissertation. Um, and I looked at it, I was like, well, what would I do with this degree? Ultimately, at the end of the day, what could I accomplish and do with this versus what can I accomplish and do right now without it? And so that was kind of, it was a tough decision because ultimately I, I still really want to pursue it. I'd still like to do it one day. You talk about political science that you uh, were studying that. Do you still yeah. follow the politics of your country? Um, I do. So when I was in college, um, I, being a political science major, I, I interned for my congressman. Uh, so at the time, um, I was in first district in Wisconsin. So my congressman at the time was Paul Ryan. Uh, who did later go on to become a VP candidate and then later on went to become the Speaker of the House. Um, so I had interned for him for a, you know, and worked for him. Um, and then I interned for our governor in Wisconsin uh, my senior year of college. So I'd always been a little bit involved in some of that. But when I joined the military uh, full time in 04, I, I wasn't involved in politics because my job wasn't had me away from all that stuff. And I technically couldn't be involved in it when I was active military. Uh, and then when the war, you know, war got going, I spent three and a half years in Iraq, and then I was a contractor in Europe for three and a half years. So I spent seven, seven years abroad, and I just wasn't in America during that period. So I really wasn't involved. It's only been the last, you know, four years, five years that I've been, I guess, a little more active, to a certain extent, uh, domestically because I've been home. What have you been doing? Uh, well, right now it's just mostly, uh, you know, you volunteer for certain things, you know, whether it's going and knocking on doors to help support your local congressmen, uh, local local elected officials, things like that, you know, aside from political donations and, and whatnot. But, you know, to be honest with you, I, I'm so busy with work. I don't really have a lot of time to get involved in a lot of those kinds of things. Like I, I wish I could. Um, and politics in our country can be very frustrating and it's 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 hard because it, there's so much negativity involved in it you know you go into i've seen some really good people go into with great intentions and then they just get they just get beat down by by the organization by the special interest groups by the apparatus and at the end of the day they just end up not being able to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish because the system isn't designed for you to accomplish anything. It's just, it's a very muddled system. It's like a giant, it's like a massive giant Panamax cargo freighter. And it just doesn't turn quick. You know, it just doesn't move quick. And that's just how our system is set up. I think that's all political systems. I have a background as a journalist. And the interesting thing, I love the saying that it doesn't matter who you are you'll always elect a politician. It seems that way. I mean, I've always been of the mind of I like people, outsiders who haven't been in it for very long because if they haven't been in it for very long, then chances are they're, they haven't been corrupted by it yet. Um, because ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, one of the things I learned when I was interning with Paul Ryan, this was back early 2000, you know, like literally like 1999, 2000, 2001. Um, it's a lot of horse trading. And you have to learn that compromise is not a bad word. Compromise is actually what gets things done. It's a matter of, okay, Mark, I'm going to support your bill, despite the fact that I disagree with it. 
And in exchange, you're going to support my bill, even though you disagree with it. But at the end of the day, we're both going to celebrate a win and we're both going to get what we want by working together and agreeing, agreeing on something and, and getting that done. And now we're kind of stuck in this my way or the highway, all or nothing. And unfortunately, nobody gets what they want or it ends up being all one side and nothing for the other. And when there's no win-win for either side, there's just no good solution to anything. What are your thoughts about the turbulent years of the Trump administration in America? Well, it's tough because there were, if you put aside the personal the personal politicking of it or, or whatnot, you just look at the actual core things that got accomplished there was actually a lot of really good things that did get accomplished. You know, for one, you know, we, Trump is the first president since Gerald Ford, 1974, essentially, to not get America involved in a new conflict. You know, he didn't invade or attack a new country. And that says something because America has a history of sticking our nose in everyone's business. <laughs> uh, we just we have a pension for it, and we love to be the global cop. And it's not it's not necessarily right, and it's not necessarily good that we do that. And this was the first time we didn't. And there were some serious issues going on with uh, North Korea and uh, and with Iran. And I thought. I was initially against meeting with Kim Jong-un, but at the end of the day, he was right that jaw-jaw is better than war-war. And if trying to talk with and negotiate with this individual is going to prevent a war and de-escalate a situation, why should we be against that? And we didn't give up, we didn't give up any, we didn't uh, give up any sanctions. We didn't give them any reward or money. What we did do was we invited them and had a couple conversations. And we suddenly didn't have any more threats of nuclear missiles being thrown at us or nuclear tests and all kinds of things simmered down. I mean, we were really looking at a, probably a war and it was averted because we were willing to sit and talk with this guy. And that, that really was quite good. And I think that there's a lot of challenges going on with China that we have turned a blind eye to because of money. I think we've looked at and said, well, there's a lot of money to be made with dealing with China. So let's turn a blind eye and let's let it happen versus no, let's call them out because that needed to happen. And neither party wanted to do it because there's a lot of money involved with it. But he was essentially like, yeah, he ran as a Republican, but was he really a Republican? <laughs> I don't really know. I think he was just more of an outsider who went in there with the sole intention of trying to solve problems and didn't really care about party politics, which is probably why the deep state aspect of both parties hated him so much. It's an interesting thing that he was such a polarizer, and he's still, but as you say, economically, Trump did quite well. Yes, we did. And it's hard to, when you put aside, again, when you put aside all the personal animus and you just look at the actual raw data, it's hard to dispute the economic, um, you know, results that we had. You know, we had, you know, the best economy going at the time before the pandemic. We had the lowest level of unemployment across every demographic in our country. 
you know, those things were good. Those are how you create a middle class for, uh, you know, people of color and things like that is by providing them with a good economic opportunity and environment to get jobs, high paying jobs and succeed and, and hold and retain those jobs for long periods of time to build wealth, to acquire a home. All of those things need to be there. Um, and so there was a lot of good. I mean, obviously, I didn't really care for the man's Twitter. I thought he sure as heck should have used that a lot more judiciously and a lot better, more effectively. But I think that there there was no doubt that there was obviously an element that was out to get him regardless of what it was. I mean, uh, you know, we the pandemic was pretty evident of that. Um, but, you know, such as, such as it is, I mean, we now have, you know, Biden. And I don't foresee him being president much longer. I mean, the man can barely hold a couple sentences together. Uh, it's just, it's, it's really quite a reversal, to be honest with you. I, there were many better Democrat candidates that even I would have supported had they been the nominee, but this guy's just somewhere out there. His uh, VP essentially is the president in waiting. Yeah. Well, and that's what Kamala Harris is. You know, she sits on the sidelines and, you know, my, this was a deeply unpopular candidate in the in the primary. She didn't win a single primary. She wasn't liked by anyone. She didn't get a lot of votes at all. And they picked her, you know, and, and the fact is, you know, she largely is the president, I think, at this point. I, I don't really think he's necessarily calling the shots. I think he's just a signature at this point. Um you know, but you know, at the end of the day, this is what people elected. This is what they're getting, <laughs> and the results that we're seeing right now is the results that they voted for. So, if at the end of the day you don't like the results, then you know you can vote differently in another four years. And that's just how our democracy works. Here in Australia, we have compulsory voting. Do you think that it would be? No, I think it'd be a terrible idea. Terrible idea, because I don't think anyone should hold a gun to your head to force you to vote. I think that you should you should be willing and wanting to vote. And if you're not willing and wanting to vote, then you, then you don't. But then you also don't get the right to really complain about it because you just chose to sit on the sidelines and not be a part of it. But I think the problem with compulsory voting is you're just going to get a lot of people who are going to vote for a lot of cruddy candidates just out of spite or vote <laughs> people know nothing about. There is that protest vote syndrome that, uh, that mm -hmm. does happen. Yeah. Do you get yeah. that in the States much, do you think? It depends. So a lot of people would say Trump was a protest vote. And in a way, maybe he was. I, I think in the primaries, he spoke to people who really felt left out. But in the general election, I think a lot of people saw this, as Michael Moore had once said, their one chance to be equal with the super rich and wealthy was when they went in the booth oh, and wow. nobody could influence or change that. And this gave them their one chance to, you know, give a, a middle finger to the system, um, <laughs> you know, but that's just how it is. I mean, the day it's, it's just, it, we get to choose every four years, our leaders, and that's the beauty of the whole system. And, you know, I wouldn't trade that system for anything because it really does work. You know, you don't like the candidate. That's fine. Just, you know, Win on win with a better message the next time round. That's how you do it. Did Trump make America great again? 
Depends what greatness is in your eyes. You know, what do you define as great? Do you define uh, no new wars as great? Then sure. Do you define uh, a secure border? Do you define a, a booming economy? I suppose it really, you have to get down to the root question of what do you define as great to really understand, is it greater now or, or before or after him, I suppose. What was the general consensus of that wall and the border with Mexico that Trump was really pushing very hard? You know, it really depended on who you talked to and where where you were located. You know, it's very easy for someone in New York to have a negative opinion about it because someone in New York isn't dealing with it. But when you live in Texas, when you live in New Mexico and Arizona and Southern California, you're directly impacted by what goes on down there on a daily basis. So from a humanitarian standpoint, it's really terrible what goes on because you have a million plus people a year walking across this desert border area and how many thousands die out there in the heat and and the sun or get lost out there and, you know, they, they could do it because there's nothing to stop them. Hmm. But, you know, let me ask you this. You own, you own a house, right? When you own a house and you have a fence up, does your fence degrade after 20 or 30 years? Does it start to fall apart naturally? And when it does, do you repair it? Or do you say, I'm not going to repair it? Well, what? how is a, a national fence on, a, on your, your border any different? Um you know, the goal is to have these really good, large uh, immigration centers where the roads are and the highways are so you can you can process people efficiently and effectively uh, through there rather than having, you know, small pockets and groups trying to go through a desert where they may die or get lost out there. Um, I guess that's how I kind of looked at it. America is built on immigration. Is there popular opinion that the Mexicans should be allowed to contribute and become citizens? Well, you can understand the vast majority of people coming across the border down there aren't Mexicans. Um, it's, you know, it's just not. The, the stats don't back that particular piece up. But the other thing, too, to keep in mind is the United States allows one million legal immigrants United States every year. We take in one million new U.S. citizens every year. That's more than any nation on earth. Um, so there is an enormous amount of legal immigration. And I think what people have a problem with is uh, the massive amount of illegal immigration, because it's not fair to all those people who have done the right thing and waited their turn uh, to just be circumvented by, by groups who want to come in unwillingly. You started in the Army and then you moved across to the Air Force. What was the reason to join the Air Force in the first place? So I originally wanted to go into the Air Force as an officer and make it a career. Um, I'd finished college and I determined after finishing college, I did want to make the military a career and go in as an officer. Uh, when I, I got initially accepted, um, I was going to go in as a, an air battle manager. Uh, it's one of those guys who sits in those AWACS planes or those J-Star planes and, and does that electronics type of stuff. And uh, the Air Force at the time was doing a force shaping, and so they were reducing the size of the force in 2003. And so my officer billet got cut in favor of only pilots and navigators. And so they're like, well, you can go enlisted, and uh, we'll let you keep your rank uh, from the Army side, and then you can just wait until the force shaping's done and reapply to OCS at that point. So I decided to do that, and 
I um, went to the Air Force, and then in, uh, shortly thereafter, I volunteered for a, a special duty assignment went to go work as a what was called a human intelligence collector or a, an interrogator. And so then I started my journey working in the intelligence world, doing uh, interrogations and source operations. How did it all unfold? So originally what happened was, so the Air Force was not originally an interrogation uh, mission. We don't usually have that. We have uh, linguist debriefers who typically work at embassies and interview defectors and, and things along those lines. Um, but with the war going on, there was a massive need for trained interrogators. And so the Air Force was asked by the Army to pick up the slack and, and take over uh, Abu Ghraib, which later then became Camp Cropper, take over that mission from them. Uh, so the Air Force put out a, a call for volunteers, and uh, they needed volunteers to, to go do this job. So I volunteered uh, to be one of the people to go do the training and uh, did about six and a half months of training, and then we did our year deployment overseas to actually do the job. What sort of attributes were they looking for when they were training people up, and what do you need to become a good interrogator? Well, in the military, they just take volunteers. They'll just say, who's willing to volunteer? Because this is a really tough, nasty job. It's going to keep you gone from your family for 18 months. That's a long time. So they were just taking anyone who was willing to volunteer. They were hoping to get 100 volunteers. They got 52. <laughs> so wow. not many of us answered that call. And once you were there, then it was a matter of just attending and going through the school. And it's odd. Like, I remember, like, the interrogation school, I kind of struggled with a little bit of it initially because it was so structured. And I knew in my heart and in my mind, this isn't real. This isn't how it's actually going to happen in real life. And I had a hard time going by this cut cookie cutter structure like that. And it was true because once you got deployed, you started doing the real job. It was nothing like the training. It wasn't structured. It was very unstructured. It was very on the fly. And if you weren't able to adjust and move like that, uh, as an interrogator, you struggled a lot over there trying to get intelligence. If you couldn't adjust on the fly and just be nimble and agile to go with the flow and adapt constantly, um, you, you, there were a lot of interrogators who did good in training and did miserable over, did miserable in the deployment because they just had a hard time adjusting like that. You talk about the structure of the interrogation that they wanted you to follow from the training. What sort of structure did they want to put in place? Well, a lot, like in the training, a lot of it was, you know, was, you'd ask one question and it would lead you to another and then you ask another question, lead to another. But that's not real. When you're interrogating a hostile subject, they're not just going to willingly give up information. They're not going to allow you to go, well, what else is there? You're going to follow along with that stuff. It's just not real. Um, you know, when you're in the booth interrogating these guys, maybe one, one minute this guy needs you to be a father figure. You know, he's a young kid, got caught doing something he shouldn't have done. He just needs someone to kind of like, you know, talk him through it. Maybe the kid, maybe this guy needs you to be an asshole because he's like, you know, he needs to simmer down. He's someone to, you know, just metaphorically slap him silly and put him in his place and wake him up to the reality of what he's just done. Or maybe you need the guy to be a best friend. But every prisoner is going to be different. Every prisoner is going to need a different personality to connect with them. And it's your job as the interrogator to be able to assess the individual, to determine what personality that person is going to need and be most cooperative with. And then 
you need to be able to constantly adjust that on the fly as you're moving through the interrogation from half hour to an hour to two or three hours and constantly being able to draw information out. If he doesn't want to talk about the activities he was involved with, which is going to be 99% of the guys, then fine, don't talk about his activity. But get him to talk about the activity of others. Get him to narc on his friends, on <laughs> other people. Uh, get him to gossip about the other people. Because guess what? If you leave him an out, he will take it every time. But if you don't leave him an out, you will spend four hours interrogating this guy and get nothing of value from him if you don't do that. And that's a very hard concept for a lot of people to pick up sometimes because they always want to go for the really sexy, where's the weapon cache? Where's the cell at? You know, who's in, who's in charge? Where's this guy at? Well, he's not going to tell you that. Not right away. But if you develop a relationship with this guy over four or five interrogations where you've shown some compassion to this guy, you said, okay, you've told me about the guys who are causing problems in your village. Let's talk about this next subject. And you know what? Why don't we talk about this over dinner? And you bring him a great dinner. Mm. And you guys sit there and you have a nice dinner together. You drink some chai together. You sit there and you smoke a hookah pipe together. You go, okay, man, look, obviously you're not the person who is involved in doing this. You're caught up in the wrong place, wrong time. I get that. But you need to help me out by telling me who are the bad guys. Because i got to go to my bosses and tell them something. And if you can tell me who the bad guys are, who the, who the guys who are really doing the bad stuff, maybe I can work out some sort of deal where we can try to get you out of here sooner. But you got to work with me. Well, at this point, you've done three or four interrogations together. He's seen, your, he's seen that if he tells you something, you're going to give him something. Now he's more willing to share the good stuff with you. But that takes patience and that takes time and a willingness on your part as an interrogator to do all of that. Are you a patient person? I learned to become a patient person in that job. <laughs> <laughs> how are the people that weren't patient, how were they dealing with, is that the, the people that were trying to keep in the structure is, you know, like yeah. when you didn't have the patience, how did that work? Yeah, well, it's just, you know, they get frustrated, you know, they get frustrated and angry and they, they use a lot of the harsher interrogation tactics, you know, screaming, yelling at them, slapping tables, you know, throwing chairs, you know, and that stuff all has a place, but it should not be a daily repertoire, <laughs> you know, it should not be a daily thing. It needs to have a very distinct uh, reason why you would do that with this prisoner. It shouldn't be a norm for all prisoners or a norm for most prisoners. Um, it's your job as the interrogator to figure this stuff out. It's not someone else's job to tell you how to do it. Uh, you know, this is why you've had a, a basic skill set of training. It's now incumbent on you to take that box of tools they gave you and figure out how to use it best. And that means you need to be in a very, you need to know how to operate in an unstructured environment very effectively and be able to adapt on the fly. Because keep in mind, this whole time you're doing this, you're working 12 to 14 hours a day. You're getting four to six hours of fully interrupted sleep all the time. You're getting rockets and mortars lobbed at your base the whole time. You've got military management who's treating you like jerks and just you know <laughs> causing problems. You've got home problems with your spouse or your girlfriend that you're dealing with on top of all this. 
And then you got your coworkers who may like you or may not like you causing all kinds of friction and problems for you. So you have an enormous amount of outside factors impacting your ability to think and just do the job before you even get in there. Uh, for me, sometimes doing the interrogation was just an escape from everything else going on out there. Did you make any friends while you were there with the, uh, the people that you did interrogate? Oh, so with the prisoners themselves, I don't know that I would call them friends per se, but I think I had developed an amicable relationship with probably two or three of my prisoners. I think I had worked with them enough to develop that Stockholm relationship where they were dependent on me um, and where they felt that they needed to help me or be cooperative with me and share information, even stuff I wasn't necessarily asking because I... I was providing them with, say, better better meals or, or a, like, you know, I would bring in food for them when we would talk. And they, that was a rarity. They never got that kind of, that level of, of, of quality of food from us. Um, or I would get them better housing arrangements, you know, um, than the large camp that they were normally in. So I would arrange that, arrange extra phone calls for them, extra Red Cross letters, you know, I tried to make, if you were cooperative for me, I tried to make your life better. If you weren't cooperative for me, I had no incentive to make your life better. And so I just would kick you to the curb and let you stay in long-term detainment. So I had warm, warmed a lot of people's hearts to me to do that kind of stuff because at the end of the day, they were stuck and they knew I was one of the few ways of getting out of there was cooperating with me. Did you get them trying to talk to you as in, if they weren't, if they were talking to someone that was, as you say, a little bit over the top and not as patient as they should be, could they try and get to you to talk to you if they knew that you were going to be uh, a better person to talk to? Uh, rare, sometimes. I mean, if they asked for you, like in the prison camp, they could go up to the guards and ask to speak to a specific interrogator. And I had that happen a few times. Um, I remember I had one case he had been interrogated by the CIA for about six weeks, and they had done a real harsh interrogation on this guy, treated him really, really bad. And I looked at it, and when I first brought him in, you know, I sat really close to him, and you know, I brought him, I brought him some some tea and and some some food, and I I, I sat really close to him, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I was like, look, I know where you just came from, and I know what they did to you. I want to say that I'm sorry for what happened to you, and I want you to know that not all of us Americans are like that. So I would like for us to start over from zero, and let's let's try to work our, work yourself work our way through this situation. You know, so to start off, why don't we sit? Let's have some let's have some lunch. Let's talk about life before the war, and let's talk about your family. And you tell me about your kids, and tell me about you know because he had studied economics. I was like, why don't you tell me about your job? I'll tell you a little bit about mine before the war, and let's just talk. And that's all we did for two hours was we just did that. And then the next interrogation, we started to talk a little bit more. And then the third interrogation, he was spilling the beans on a lot of stuff because we had built that rapport. We started fresh, and I, I got him to start opening up. And he told me just a plethora of stuff he never told the CIA. And, you know, the CIA came around like, hey, man, you got our guy talking. I'm like, yeah, I didn't treat him like crap. <laughs> <laughs> Was the, the old saying that you uh, catch more flies with honey than you do with uh, vinegar? Vinegar, yep, exactly, you do. 
do. The CIA, what sort of tactics were they using that was, was so harsh? Was there torture involved over there? All right. So, one, I didn't interrogate with the CIA, so I couldn't really speak to what they do. Uh, their specific tactics. All I could read was, you know, interrogation notes and and uh, the the interrogation summaries and things like that from their interrogators. Uh, maybe watch a few of the interrogation videos if I had a chance. Uh, but we're distinctly different than them. DOD military interrogators are distinctly different than the agency interrogators. They have a different set of rules to operate on than we do. Uh, we had to operate under the 2005 Detainee Treatment Act at law and those requirements we had to operate under, they did not. Um, but as a torture, it depends. What do you define as torture, you know, is what it comes down to. I mean, currently in America, in our prison system, you can be put into isolation for years. We have some people who have served in isolation for 20 years. Well, isolation like that in the Geneva Conventions deemed torture. Um, so, do you, you know, is our current criminal system torturing people? Well, under those guidelines, you'd have to say yes. But, you know, in the military, no, <laughs> we weren't at all. So, it really depends on what you actually define as torture as to whether or not that was actually happening or not. Do you agree with it? No, I mean, there's a place and a purpose for everything. And it again, it depends what you define as torture. Now, separation, I hand it down, I think that was absolutely needed, very important, because what happens is, say, a prisoner gets captured and you don't separate him. What happens? He gets put into general population. He's in now a camp with 250 other people. Now, what happens? Those guys are going to tell him and coach him on what to say and what not to say. So now you captured this guy, but now he has, he's of no value because you can't interrogate him and get any information on him because he's been coached. So now you have to try to fight through that coaching to get him to become cooperative. Whereas if you had separated him from the very beginning, he doesn't know anything, doesn't know what's going on. He's totally susceptible to everything. Maybe you can break through his defenses right away and get him to become cooperative and turn him into a working source. But that opportunity has been taken away from you because you put him in general population. So there's a lot of tactics we needed to be allowed to use that we were not allowed to use. And I think that that cost, that cost a lot of lives, I think, in the end, because we had our hands tied. Um, so I was very frustrated with some of those things. What sort of things? Well, just the separation. You know, we had, I, at best, I had, I had to put it together a separation package. So to put them into separation for just three days, I had to have our, our commander, a colonel, sign off on it. To put him in separation for 30 days, I had to have our task force commander, which was a two-star general. To put him in separation for 60 days, I had to have General Petraeus himself sign off on a four-star. Uh, anything beyond that was either unattainable or it'd have to be done by the Secretary of Defense. It's just it was ludicrous, ludicrous. Buried in uh, paperwork. Uh, just what well, just meant that it didn't get done. And so a lot of prisoners who had value were coached and blocked and prevented from actually sharing anything. So yeah, you removed him from the street, but you no one voided any opportunity to learn what they were doing. Um, and again, you're putting him in separation. You're not breaking bones. You're not depriving him of food. You're not hurting him. You're just putting him in a room so he can't talk with anyone. I mean, that's torture. It's just, it's frustrating. When you think about uh, an Al Qaeda terrorist or something like that, you don't think about someone with an economics degree. Did you find much of that and did it surprise you? I would, well, all right. So half the time, the prisoners you got were usually leaders in the organization at some level. 
anyone who was in leadership at some level typically had a college degree and some of them would have masters or PhDs. They weren't idiots. These <laughs> guys were very smart individuals. They knew what they were doing. They were very organized um, and they were running a very big enterprise. So they, they were quite smart individuals. Of course, you also had, you know, your farmers and shepherders and guys who were just placing IEDs on the sides of the road and they knew nothing. And they were very simple minded people who were told, here's 20 bucks, go put this IED over there. And, and they would do it. And those guys, they didn't know anything. So you would capture them and remove them from the battlefield. But again, they have no value. They don't know anything. And now you've just got an extra mouth to feed and he's sitting in a prison camp. Um, <laughs> you know, so the the real the real the real guys the big the big league guys were very smart individuals these guys had college degrees uh they knew what they were doing and those were the ones you wanted to interrogate because they had big operations i mean i had guys who were number two number three in the organization i had some al-qaeda prisoners who were international al-qaeda so they were in iraq but they were tied to al-qaeda in europe and africa and, and even the united states um so you know, you had a broad spectrum of people that you were interrogating, uh, which kind of really helped out round out your experience as an interrogator it was incumbent upon you to be an, be as educated as you could be as versed as you could and what was going on and know as much information as possible because you didn't know what kind of guy you were going to interrogate. You might have a guy who has an electrical engineering degree and then you might then the next day you might be interrogating a guy who's just a shepherd. So it really was a broad spectrum of who you got sometimes. Was it exhilarating when you were getting information that you needed? Oh, yeah. When you get information, they're giving up the goods, and they bring out the maps, and they're, like, eagerly showing you where everything is, and then they're telling you, hey, don't go this route because there's we placed IEDs along this side of the road, and they're over here, and they're telling you about all that stuff. That's really good, and that's very valuable information because that saves lives. It allows us to go a different route so we don't get blown up. And then, you know, you capture a huge stash of weapons or you capture a safe house and you free a bunch of people who are being held hostage or prisoner. That's great when you would get those. And we did get those. Um, those were awesome experiences to have, um, you know, but you also had missions where where things went bad. You know, we had a number of missions where guys got killed. Um, you know, I, I remember distinctly I had one mission where we had six guys get killed on a single mission. Wow. Um, you know, and, and that sucks. That really hurts when that kind of stuff would come back. Um, but, you know, it, it is a war. It is a conflict. And uh, there is fighting that happens. And unfortunately, people do die. Did you feel responsible? I felt responsible in, in that I couldn't convince the commander to, to take a different route. Uh, we had found the, I, we had identified where several IEDs were going to be placed. Uh, in route to this location and the commander at the time they were a brand new unit in country they were itching for a fight um, they opted not to heed our warning and they went down the road we told them explicitly not to go down and they got hit by two IED attacks and six guys got killed and probably about a dozen more got wounded um, and they did get involved in a big firefight which is what he was after but you know had, maybe if I had been more persuasive or uh, more aggressive and pushing for them not to go down this route than they wouldn't have. But it's hard to play the I wish I could have game or I should have game because you can't go back in time and change those things. And I struggled with that a lot. And the more you fight that, the more you go round and round with that, the more it's just going to eat you up inside. 
because there must have been a lot of that, that, that internal turmoil when you were over there, when you were dealing with these guys. There is. There is a lot. I mean, I had one case where I had a 15-year-old kid that we captured. He got caught placed in an IED. And his father and three brothers were responsible for the IEDs and car bombs being built in this particular region of northern Baghdad, southern uh, Diyala province that I covered. And we were after his brother and his dad. They were our HVIs for the area. We were trying to capture them. And you know, I convinced the kid, you know, we did a very harsh interrogation on him because he's 15, he'd be susceptible to that. Um, and we convinced him to tell us where they were. And when we were, when we were interrogating him about the layout of the house and everything, doors either open in or they open out. And when they open in or out, they have certain types of locking mechanisms on them. So when these doors opened in, I forgot to ask if they had locks on the tops and bottoms of the door, not just the center. So when the breaching unit went in, they went in with the rams to bust down the door. And because I'd forgotten to ask about the tops, the top locks and the bottom locks on the door, they couldn't get in right away. And when they didn't get in right away, uh, the brother and father were able to get to their weapons and they started shooting at our guys. And so one of the soldiers, he ended up getting his arm shot off and another guy got, got shot as well. And then they pulled everyone back and there was a bit of a gunfight ensued. And then the, on, the, the commander on the ground uh, decided not to lose any more of his guys or taking more chances with it. So they had a gunship call, come in and just level the place. And that solved the problem. We eliminated the, the father and the three brothers who are our HVIs. Um, but the problem was, in doing so, we also killed his mother, his grandmother, and his five brothers and sisters in the strike. And so, you know, they go in, they pull the bodies and do a PID, and I have to go in with this 15-year-old prisoner now, and I have to have him PID his dad and his three brothers. And then at the same time, you know, he's seeing the pictures of, you know, his mom, his grandma, and his dead five brothers and sisters, and that's tough. Because I told this kid, you know, you tell us the information, we'll go capture them at night, and they'll survive, you know, because dead people can't talk, and I need them to talk. Um, and that didn't work out. It didn't happen. I feel bad about that, because maybe if I had remembered to ask about those door locks, they would have been able to breach faster, get in, and our soldier wouldn't have lost his arm, the other guy wouldn't have gotten shot, and his family wouldn't have gotten killed. But, you know... You can only do the best you can do. And at some point, you just have to accept that the enemy gets a vote. The enemy gets to ask their own, to do their own piece to this. And you just have to accept that and move on. But it's hard because that's one situation and you have that going on on a daily basis. You know, it's just day in, day out, you know, one mission after another after another. Some missions go south and some missions go exceptionally well. Uh, and it's terrible when the missions go bad because people get killed in those missions, whether it's our guys or theirs. It really, just listening to that, the pressure must be immense. It's brutal because how do you, you know, that you go in and do that and you're like, damn. And now you've got like six more hours of interrogations you got to go do that day. So you got to put that out of your mind. And now you got to go interrogate these other three guys. And you got to get information out of these three guys and go write up the information that's going to get put into a report that's going to go uh, get actioned by another unit to go hit another target. 
and you're like, God, please let this one go better so we don't get more people killed, <laughs> you know? But at the end of the day, you know, we're there to fight the enemy. We're there to, to end the war and, and bring this thing to a conclusion. You know, I was there in, in the end of 06 through 07, so I was there during the surge. Our, you know, we had 30,000 infantry soldiers show up, and they were itching for missions. And we were there to try and end the sectarian violence and end this civil war and bring stability to the country. And that involved an awful lot of fighting, unfortunately. Could you have done things different? I've asked myself that question for, what, 13 years now. Um, could you do things differently? Looking back at it, I'm sure you always could have done things differently. But we are, unfortunately, in the year two, you know, 2021, and I can't go back in time and I can't make those changes. And I think after so many years of struggling with, I should have done this differently, I could have done this differently, I've now just accepted that it, it is what it is and I can't change it and I just have to move on. What would you have done differently if you had been able to? I would, one, I would have tried, I would have tried to remember those, some of those lesser important questions more often because there's so many questions to ask in an interrogation from how many windows are in this building to how many weapons are there, how many armed combatants could there be, is there a dog, is there a security system, is there emotional alarms, is there lights on the outside, what are the approaches, are there IDs on the approaches, there's so many questions to ask that it's very easy to forget one, especially when you're being asked questions by the prisoner or while you're in the middle of an interrogation, there's a rocket or, or missile attack going on in your base, and you're listening to the alarms going off. And there's so many things that distract you. It's very hard sometimes to stay focused and not forget a question like that. I think if I was there, I probably would just tell my younger self, just do the best you can and know that the enemy is always going to get a vote. And no matter how hard you try, there's always going to be something you're going to miss. What sort of questions were the prisoners asking of you? A lot of times they'd ask you about their charges because when they get after so long, after so many days of being there, they would be presented with their charges from the Iraqi criminal court. You know, the Ministry of Interior would issue down their charges, uh, whether it's a terrorism charge or it's a charge for uh, attack against coalition forces or Iraqi government forces. And all of those charges would usually have next to it a prison term <laughs> next to it. Uh, some prison terms were longer than others. You know, I had a prisoner who was telling us he's like, you know, he was involved in weapon smuggling. I was like, look, man, you need to cooperate with me. You need to tell me how are these weapons getting smuggled in from Iran. Who's your contacts? Where are the weapons being buried? What's going on? Because if you don't cooperate with me, there's nothing we can do for mitigating circumstances with the court. And they've got you on it with evidence. They're going to try you. You're going to get, you're going to get convicted. And he's like, oh, I don't believe you. Well, you know, I don't know anything and blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, fine, whatever. Well, three months later, he got convicted for 20 years. Wow. And then he's like, well, what can I tell you? What can I do to get my sentence reduced? I'm like, dude, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can tell me going to help your case at this point you've been sentenced you had your chance to cooperate and you chose not to and now you're going to serve a 20-year sentence when the likelihood is i probably could have got you off entirely if you'd just given up the goods um 
So you get asked a lot of questions like that, you know, they, you know, they'd want their lawyer and, and all that stuff. And I was like, look, you'll get your lawyer when you go to a judge and you go before a court. Right now you're in the interrogation process. That's not my cup of tea. Are lawyers involved in this sort of interrogation at all? In our interrogations, yes. So we actually had a four-layer process. So as an interrogator, I'd write up my interrogation. I'd go to my uh, NCO in charge, my non-commissioned officer in charge would sign off on it. Then my officer in charge would sign off on the approach and the tactics and what we were doing. And we had another group called the Behavioral Psychologist Group, which was a, a psychology a psychologist who would sign off on our tactics. And they would also help us with uh, breaking prisoners and manipulating the situation better to our advantage. And then we had legal. Uh, we always had lawyers who would sign off on every interrogation approach and what you're doing, how you're going to do it. They would always be monitoring the interrogations to make sure you didn't overstep your bounds. Um, so it was a very regimented process in that regards. Uh, so, yeah, it was very legalistic. We always had observers and monitors making sure we didn't cross we didn't cross the line or do anything we weren't supposed to. Did you ever feel like it, crossing the line? Oh, sometimes you would. You get super frustrated. You know, you get some prisoner, you got some smirk on his face. You just want to slap it off his face, but you can't do that. <laughs> you know, um, obviously there's situations you feel like that. But at the end of the day, I just like, you know, fine. Like, dude, you don't want to cooperate with me. That's fine. I'll send you down to Kambuka. Go spend the next two or three years down there and, and you know, sulk down there. If you don't want to cooperate with me, I've got 500 other prisoners who one of them will. <laughs> and so I would just kick him to the curb and I'd work on the ones who did. Did you ever have language problems when you're dealing with these guys? We, yeah, absolutely. So part of the new regulations was even if you spoke Arabic or Farsi, you were not allowed to use it. Wow. Um, we had to use a, a, an interpreter. Uh, so fortunately in the U.S., we have a lot of uh, Muslim Americans in, in America, who a lot of people who immigrated first or, or second generation to the U.S., had a lot of, of people who were from Iraq, actually, uh, who spoke the local dialects fluently, as well as neighboring countries that spoke the dialect, spoke Arabic fluently. And these guys had security clearances, whether secret or top secret clearances, and they were assigned to work with us in the intelligence group. And so we would leverage these guys in the interrogations, and they were great. They were super smart, really brilliant, knew what they were doing. Um, you know, but even if you weren't a fluent Arabic speaker, after six months, you could kind of tell certain phrases, certain sayings, every interrogation would say the same thing. <laughs> and so like, whoa, Lord, you know, I swear to God, I don't know this. You're like, ah, you get through part of their sentence, you cut them off because you know what they're saying and you move on to the next question. You know, like, I don't need that translator. I know what he's saying. Um, you know, but it was, you know, and sometimes you'd have prisoners who, you know, would speak Farsi because they're Iranians. <laughs> you know, you catch every now and then you catch an Iranian IRGC member or a Badrkor guy and uh, you have to bring in a Farsi interrogator and in, 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 in interviewer in, instead of a, uh, an Arabic translator. Those were always challenging. Why is it that you couldn't, even if you could speak the dialect, speak the language, why is it that you needed an interpreter? Because under the new laws and guidance, uh, the interrogator had to speak English and then it had to be translated into Arabic and they had to go from Arabic back to being translated into English. And this was done so that way the outside monitors would always know and understand exactly what the interrogator had said. And there was never an insinuation of, well, did he threaten the prisoner? I don't know, because I don't speak Arabic. 
or maybe that Arabic term could have been used as a threat. Well, if we're always speaking English, you're, you, just, you take away that opportunity. You talk about the pressure. There was the constant bombing in of the base. There was like 1,400 uh, attacks a year, oh, cool. I believe. Yeah. Oh, man. They would hit you. Sometimes you, you go a day or two, no rockets, no no bombs. And then the next day, they, they'd they hit you you know, five times in a day with anywhere from one to, to seven or eight rockets in a, at a time. Um, very much like Israel right now. It's just insane, uh, except we're on a much smaller base, not a big country. Uh, so there wasn't a lot to – they just hit. <laughs> you just had to take it. Um you know, a lot of times they're smaller rockets. So they weren't always too super big. But, you know, if a rocket had your number on it, man, it had your number on it. You know, you could be walking to chow and a rocket could land a few feet from you and blow up in front of you. Or you could be sitting there minding your own business in the chow hall or, or type report and a rocket hits in the ceiling and implodes on you. Um, just it was so random that ha- things happen. And being at the prison, we'd have rockets to land inside the prison and blow up a bunch of prisoners, and they didn't like that. And I was like, well, we don't like it either, so maybe you can tell us about your buddies who are doing that. <laughs> so what, are they trying to get rid of the prisoners so they couldn't release no, no, information? They didn't, really care. they didn't really care. What they're trying to do is they know that this is where the base is. This rocket will travel six kilometers. So we're going to set up our, our rocket right here, and we're going to hope the rocket's going to hit the base somewhere. They have no idea where. Maybe it's going to fall short by half a mile or half a kilometer. Maybe it's going to be a kilometer long. Maybe it's going to hit. They have no idea where. Now, what does happen is they'll have local nationals working on the base for us. And when the rocket hits, someone will be sitting outside watching to see where it hits. And then that guy will record where it hits. At some point during the day or, or a couple days later, he'll go to where it hit. And then he'll try to mark off where it hits from a known position. And then they'll relay that information back and say, okay, so this is where we launched the rocket of it spray painted on the ground. And they'll say, this is where it hit. So we need this rocket to go 500 meters to the left and go up 500. So then they'll move the rocket 500 meters to the launcher, 500 meters left, they'll move the launcher up 500, they'll launch the next rocket and they'll look and see if they get the result they want. And so they would do an awfully lot of that kind of stuff. So sometimes you just have one or two rockets launched at you three or four times in a day. And what ha- what's happening in that case is they're, mar- they're marking off where they're hitting. So once they get it to the vicinity they want, then the next attack they'll launch, they'll launch it with 10 or 15 rockets sometimes because they know it's generally going to hit where they want it. Were you fearful? Um, when you first arrive, yes, you jump at every rocket, every boom, every siren, six months, seven months into the process, it just doesn't phase you. You're just like, eh, whatever. If it's got your name on it, it's got your name on it. Um, and you just moved on. Was there the aspect that it couldn't happen to me? No, there was always the aspect of it could happen to you. But I think after so long, you get desensitized by it. I think part of you just comes to the realization that you just accept it. You just accept that my fate's not my own while I'm here. And if it happens, it happens. And it's out of my control. And I think the sooner you accept that, the sooner you accept that this is out of your control and it will or it won't happen, uh, the sooner your fear went away. You just stopped being afraid. You're able to go on with your life and with your daily activities because you weren't living in fear anymore. You volunteered for the mission. 
and you're away for a long time from your family. How did yeah. you cope with that? Uh, that was hard. Um, you know, I guess I was lucky in that in our day and age, we had uh, video. We had video uh, ability to do that. It's like you could use um, Microsoft Live at the time was a big tool to do video chats. Um, there were other chat tools you could use where you could use the video capability. Um, you know, we had the ability to call fairly frequently. I mean, I could talk almost daily to my family, um, whether it's a satellite phone or one of the regular internet-based phones. Um, so I was able to stay in communication with them, which did help. Uh, I didn't talk to my wife every day, but I probably talked to her pretty darn close. Um, if I was moving to a new fob or I was on a mission or doing something like that, I'd tell her, look, I'm going to be gone for the next four days or the next five days. I'm not going to be able to talk. I will send you emails when I can, but I'm probably not going to be able to call you or do a phone or do a, a video call. Um, and so I usually was pretty good about letting my wife know in advance when those kinds of things would happen. In your grandfather's time, they obviously mm -hmm. were trying to send letters. That was the way things got through, if they got through, and they were heavily censored. How was yeah. your communication with back home, how was that controlled? Believe it or not, we weren't censored. Um, should we have been censored? Maybe. But because of phone calls, video calls, emails, and phone, I don't think there was a method in place where they could censor you. Could they censor you now with our technology now? Probably better, but not back then. Um, you know, they obviously learned that with Bradley Manning, you know, or Chelsea Manning now and how he was able to divulge classified information because it wasn't censored. But, you know, I mean, I would receive letters. My wife's grandmother and her side of the family was actually really good about sending me letters and sending me care packages. Um, my parents would send a letter or care package uh, fairly frequently. Um, my wife didn't send me a lot of letters because we talked on the phone instead. We video chatted a lot. So we communicated like that substantially more so. I didn't expect letters from her, and I didn't really send a lot of letters. How important were those care packages? Uh, they were nice and helpful. They helped to remind you that there was a world outside of these four walls in Iraq, uh, which you did lose sight of at times. Um, you worked so much, just weeks would go by, and you wouldn't realize it. Um, so it was nice to get those, especially around uh, the holidays and Christmas. Uh, my family had organized a, a mail, a package drive through our church. So I ended up getting 56 or 52 boxes of Christmas presents for my unit. Wow. Inside of every box was two to three more boxes of Christmas presents. So we were able to give away over 100 Christmas presents to people in our unit, which was kind of cool. Uh, my wife's aunt works for Ghirardelli Chocolate. And so she was able to send me multiple care packages where I was receiving not just some chocolate bars, I was receiving like 10 pounds of Ghirardelli chocolate. Uh, so like substantial sums of chocolate, <laughs> like hundreds of chocolate bars and, and stuff. And so I would hand those out all the time and uh, it, was, it was nice to get some of those care packages. You must have been a popular guy. Oh, yeah, certain times of the year, very popular, you know. But it was strange, though. So normally in the Air Force, when you deploy, you're gone for four, three or four months. And my Air Force, you know, we were gone for 18. And so 
I remember arriving in Iraq like my first week and I would see a couple guys from my my unit back here in Florida and I'm like hey man how's it going like oh man we're getting ready to head home you know and we're heading home in like three days and I'm like oh out here and like wow man that's cool and I'm like well I guess we'll see you when you get back and I'm like yeah right because I know I'm just starting a 12-month tour and so they finished their three-month tour they would go home and what was miserable was nine months later they would come back for their next three-month tour. And they're like, hey, man, you're still here. I'm like, yep, haven't left, still here. <laughs> they're like, wow, man, that's a long time. And uh, then they would be getting ready to go home. And they're like, so you're coming home this time with us, right? And like, I got two more weeks left. They're like, oh, my God, I've come here, I've gone, I've come back, and I'm going, and you're still here. <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm still here. <laughs> How tough is that sort of deployment on relationships and marriage brutal 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 several guys while i was deployed over they got divorce papers while they were in iraq wow um it's tough it was tough because we were gone for six months before we even left uh you know we had six and a half months we were gone in training we saw our families for probably two weeks out of that or 10 days out of that two out of that six and a half months and then we were gone for 12 and we saw our families for another two weeks inside that 12 months and that was it so I think I saw my wife 26 days or 28 days out of uh, a year and a half. So not a lot. Did it uh, strengthen your relationship then? I think for us at the time it did. Um, we'd only been married a year and a half when I left. So we hadn't been married very long when I left. Um, but I, I like to think it did. Uh, it did. I, I like to think it did. Because did you communicate more because you were forced to communicate? You communicated because you, you had to make a decision to communicate. And my wife was my lifeline to the real world. You know, she was my window to the world outside of Iraq. So, yeah, she was my lifeline to normality and insanity. So, yeah, I communicated a lot because it was the way, my only window, my only connection to the outside world. What did you learn through that window while you were bunkered away in Iraq what was the biggest thing that you used to find out about the real world that was so important so well for me what was frustrating was while we were dealing with everything over in Iraq everyone was back home dealing with nothing <laughs> nobody was dealing with a hardship like in World War II people had hardships back home you know they had to deal with gas gas uh, shortages and rations they had to deal with tire rations they had to deal with food rations you know, life was not normal. They they felt the war back home um, because they had to make sacrifices for the guys overseas. And back home, nobody was making any sacrifices for anything. Life was going on as if the war wasn't happening. You know, we were dealing with everything we were dealing with, and no one was having to make sacrifices back home. And I suppose that was kind of tough because here's 140,000 of us over here doing this, and you guys don't even know it. <laughs> you guys don't even know we're here if they didn't show it on the media. You know, that was kind of tough. Did you resent that? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, when I came home from Iraq, uh, last day in Iraq was the uh, last day of Ramadan. We're getting the crap pounded out of us. For 30 minutes, they're bombing my base. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm getting out of here in like 10 hours. I don't want to die in my last 10 hours. And I finally get out of there, and I'm back home 72 hours later and 72 hours later after going through that rocket attack 
I'm walking around in a mall and I'm thinking to myself, 72 hours ago, people were trying to blow me up and kill me. And now I'm walking around the mall like nothing's going on in the world. Like nothing's changed. There's nothing going on. And all these people are oblivious to what to, to that stuff. They're oblivious to everything. And that was hard for me to accept that a bit because, you know, they had no sacrifice. They didn't know what was going on. They weren't they weren't living in fear like we were. You know, every little boom or bang from a car backfiring or car tires screeching or this or that, you know, was a threat for me. And for them it just wasn't anything. And that was that was very hard to adjust to. How did you adjust? Is there enough done to repatriate soldiers when they come home or military no. personnel? No, not at all. Nothing. You come back from deployment, you sign back in with your unit, and then you start two weeks of essentially R&R with your family. So you go from a combat zone to 72 to 96 hours, you're at home with your family, no adjustment. There's no down period. There's nothing. It's just back home you know you're used to carrying a weapon everywhere you go and now you're not now you're not carrying anything um i think what would have been better is if they had us go home or go back to our base and or a base and spend maybe two weeks of just decompressing of just two weeks on the base or at a base and maybe in europe or something and just two weeks of just downtime Time to go to a bar, go to a pub, have some food, go to a park, get drunk, hang out with your buddies. Just time to decompress before they let you go home with your family because you're not ready to go home with your family yet. That person that was in the war is not ready to go home yet. <laughs> I've heard that story from exactly what you've said from a lot of military personnel that I've spoken to that they don't get that decompression what effect does that have on you when you don't get it? I think it immediately exacerbates your PTSD symptoms. I think it, it sets you up for a really bad case of PTSD because you're going from an environment that you know, you know and you're comfortable in. It may be a dangerous environment, but you know it. And then suddenly you're thrown out of that environment and you go from a job where you're interrogating terrorists and you're hunting and capturing these people to five days later, you're walking around a mall and you're not doing any of that. That's hard. That's hard. What did you do? What was the PTSD that you suffered and how did it affect you when you were, say, walking in a mall? For me, I had a really hard time not manipulating and interrogating people. Um, you know, just the normal conversations or anything going on at work. It was very easy for me to fall back into that role, and I had a hard time not doing that. Um, I was also kind of, uh, you know, you're just very hypervigilant to things going on. Don't like, don't like crowds, don't like loud noises. You're a little jumpy on some of those things. You know, some of those were probably the hardest part. Uh, sleep was another really big one. Uh, just had a hell of a time sleeping. Uh, every time I go to sleep, I'm just interrogating in my mind, and so I'm, my brain's not getting any rest. Um, so you wake up exhausted, you go to sleep exhausted. Um, you know, it was it was quite a challenge. It was definitely a challenge. Um, I, I think I had more PTSD problems and challenges uh, probably about five or six years after I left the military when I was officially done doing government contracting work and done doing that mission. 
and uh, really had time to decompress and, and just be in a normal civilian job. That's, I think, when the problems, more of the problems started. Your wife must have been a great support, though, at that time. She was. She also, during that period, was going to school to be a nurse, and part of her nurse rotation was working in uh, like the mental health uh, uh, group at a hospital, and so she got to see a lot of what the situa- symptoms were and how people were struggling with that. So I think she knew I was dealing with PTSD, and she was able to help. She was more understanding of it. Um, she, she was a lot more caring and understanding of what I was going through, as opposed to someone who had no clue and had no caring or understanding. And I suppose marriages would continue to fall apart afterwards as a result of what happened in a wartime situation. I think so. I think that's why you see divorce rates are very, very high for military service members. Um, I think a lot of guys will end up getting divorced from their first wife that they were married to during the mil- in the military or over in Iraq. And then they'll get married to someone new and someone fresh um, who maybe did, did wasn't aware of all that, wasn't around for that. And the veteran at that point has gotten very good at suppressing those, those things. And so they're not displaying that for their new spouse. And their new spouse is oblivious that it's under the surface or that it's even there. And then it eventually comes up and another marriage bites the dust. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I want to get on to your writing. Um, you started writing, I believe, while you were in Iraq. What was the process to, to get actually putting notes to paper? So for me, I wrote a journal. When I was over there, I was like, I just need to write a journal and journal everything I'm seeing and doing um, just as a way to decompress. And also I wanted to have it as a bit of a memoir to look back on you know, 10, 20, 30 years later on. So for me, I, I start, that's how it started. And then when I came home from Iraq, I turned my journal into essentially like a book of my experiences. Uh, and it, it became a lot more formal and structured. Uh, and then we, we published that first book. Uh, the publisher we published it with wasn't a very good publisher. They didn't do a good job with it. And I wasn't very satisfied with that product. And then I didn't touch it again. I didn't touch it for years. You know, I went into working in contracting and doing some other civilian jobs for a while. And then when I was in Oxford, I did a lot of writing for my graduate degree at Oxford. And I started to realize, you know, I like this writing stuff. My job had me doing a lot of writing. My Oxford degree had me doing a lot of writing. And I said, you know, I'm going to write a book. Why not? Let me just write what I want. And so I started writing, you know, some, my first book. And I never published that thing. I can't even find it anymore. <laughs> but I wrote the thing, and it led me to start writing more stuff. And then I took a couple-year break where I just let it sit on the side. And then when I had gotten laid off from a job in, in Washington, D.C., uh, at the time, a VA counselor told me, you know, why don't you look at writing again as, as therapy? You said that it helped you, it made you feel relaxed. Why don't you actually write more, do that more, make it a structured thing, write an actual book and see if that helps with your symptoms. And so I did. And that's when I wrote my first book series. You know, it was prelude to World War III, some dystopian future in the 2040s. And I wrote that and I didn't think anything, anyone would buy it. And I published it and 
Next thing you know, I started selling, you know, two, three, four copies a day. Then it was like 10, 15 copies a day. Then I wrote the second book. And the second book, I started selling more. And then I wrote the third book. And at this time, I was working as a vice president for Aon Insurance. Um, and I was a cyber risk insurance broker. And so I was making very good money. I was making six figures working for that company, doing very well. Uh, but then my third book came out. And it just went bonkers. I, I made like $10,000 in a month. And I was like, holy cow, I can make a lot of writing books. What am I doing? And so I worked on a fourth book for the series and it did pretty good. And I was, you know, I was making, I started hitting like three, th three, $4,000 a month writing books. I was like, this is actually legit. This is, this is really good. Um, and then that company uh, sold part of its, they sold part of the company off to an investment firm and in the process of that sale, they laid 2000 of us off. So I found myself unemployed again. And I was thinking to myself, you know, my writing is doing pretty decent. I'm actually making more than a few thousand dollars a month writing books while I was working full time. If I can work 60 hours a week for corporate America, I sure as heck can spend 60 hours a week writing books. And that's exactly what I did. So we started writing uh, the Red Storm series, which started with Battlefield Ukraine, and went. And that was a six-book series, and it took off. We were just selling, we were just making money hand over fist on that series. It just took off, and that just born a, a whole new writing career for us. And at that point, I was like, "All right, we know what we're doing. We're not going to look for any more jobs. We're just going to write together, and we're going to create all these awesome, epic books. And this is going to be our new our new career. And it's been off to the races the last." Uh, almost four years now doing that. And it's just, it's just been a, a brilliant career. I think it's a wonderful thing to help with PTSD. Uh, you know, Matt Jackson, you interviewed last week, uh, got into writing for PTSD. Uh, he was originally one of my beta readers helping me write some different airborne scenes and different scenes for the books. And then I got him into writing his own account, his own Vietnam story and his own books. And now he's written multiple books and we're doing a series together over the fall that's going to come out uh, about Desert Storm and, you know, and, and creating that. And I'm getting more and more veterans into writing as therapy. And now they're creating their own stories. But more importantly, we're showing that veterans struggling with PTSD can find a new purpose in life as a writer. And even if you're struggling with PTSD and you're not able to work a nine to five job, a traditional nine to five job, you can write any time of the day, any day of the week, and support yourself. You don't have to depend on a government handout or, or benefits and disability uh, pensions, things like that. You can make a living as a writer. And that's important to show these guys that there is an alternative way to support yourself and your family, that you're not a burden on them, you're not a burden on society. You can be repurposed and remissioned with a new job and a new purpose and, and just tell stories, tell stories that people find fascinating and are willing to pay money for. And that's kind of been my new focus and new mission is writing our own books to support ourselves, but mentoring and taking in other veterans, showing them how to do it, and then teaching them to fish so that they can fish and support themselves. Why do you think veterans make good storytellers? Because we've had such amazing experiences. We've experienced things that few people in the civilian world have. We've had incredible training. 
Uh, most veterans have a pretty good work ethic and they're disciplined. Um, they're they're in, they're out of the box thinkers a lot of times. Uh, most of them are pretty educated, believe it or not. And we've just been there and done that. We've done a lot of things. I mean, I've served three and a half years in the war. I've worked at the grunt infantry level all the way up to working on General Petraeus's staff and General and Admiral McRaven's staff and being on there where I'm in meetings with these guys once a week to talk about strategies and plans and operations and hear their way of thinking, hear their tactics and plans and how they solve problems and then integrate that stuff into our writing and our books. Um, and so I think that veterans bring a lot to the table because they've traveled the world, they've seen and done things that others haven't. And that adds a level of realism to your books and your characters that you just can't get elsewhere. I remember one time when I interviewed our Prime Minister, John Howard, he had a, mm. an immense understanding of his own power. How was General Petraeus? Was he very much aware of his stature? I think he was. Um, I think General Petraeus was like that warrior monk, kind of like how they refer to Mattis. I didn't personally get to work with Mattis uh, very much. He took over CENTCOM when General Petraeus left to go work in Afghanistan, and I, I left to go work uh, on, a SOCOM, on a special operations task order in Europe uh, maybe a month after he left. Um, but General Petraeus was a very thoughtful thinker, very deliberate person. When he made a plan and an action, it was a very well thought out plan and action for why he was doing it. It wasn't rash. It wasn't irrational. It wasn't off the cuff. It was a very deliberative process uh, for his, his, his orders and what he did. As a person, I can't speak to that. I don't know him as a, in a personal capacity. Um, you know, I just knew him from the operations and plans that I had worked on uh, that supported his greater vision and, and guidance. How would you describe yourself? <sighs> That's tricky because I think I'm always evolving and maturing as both a person, a writer, and a manager. Um, there were times where I was very rash and irrational and very brash and just pushy like that. Uh, but I think as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit more matured and a little bit more deliberate in some of the things I, I like to do. You know, I think what I try to do is plan for what are the second, third, and fourth order effects to, de to, to decisions and plans. Um, as a business owner, as a publisher, you know, I'm not I'm responsible for publishing and working on my own works, but I'm also now responsible for helping to mentor and grow a couple of other writers and get them to be successful. You know, I have a, a full-time employee outside of my wife and I that, you know, I have to think about as well. So there's a lot of business decisions that you have to make and say, okay, if we spend uh, $10,000 on this ad spend, how is this going to affect the business? How, what is our rate of return going to be? Um, can we float the expense while we're waiting for other receipts to come in? There's a lot more decisions involved when you're dealing with uh, your money and the business's money than when you're dealing with the government's money. <laughs> Must be exciting, though, that uh, you're putting time into yourself rather than the government. Well, it is. And what I like most now is when I work 80 hours a week, I see the fruits of the labor of 80 hours a week. When I worked for corporate America, I was working to make other people money. 
uh, or make other divisions or groups money and make them do well. And I didn't get to benefit from that. Um, same with the government. You know, you work for the government to serve your country, but at some point uh, you have to start looking out for your own business, your own family, and starting to serve your own family because um, the government's notorious for using you while they can. And then when you're no, of no use, they just spit you out and leave you on the side of the road. <laughs> so, you know, you got to be able to take care of your own family and your own, your own people. And for me, I want to build up this publishing business um, to help a lot of other veterans and grow it. But I also want to be able to leave this business uh, for my own kids. You know, I've got three kids, an eight-year-old, a soon-to-be six-year-old, and then uh, an eight, a 20-month-old. And so maybe one day down the road, they'll want to get involved in the publishing business. Maybe they won't. But I want to give that as an opportunity to do that. And my goal is to uh, really expand and grow this out. So I'm not taking on a lot of veterans all at once. I'm trying to take on a small group of veterans, really mentor them, really show them how to become good writers, develop them as good writers. Because if I do that, then they'll be and when they start writing for our company, they're, they're going to be very, very good, effective writers. They're going to be good incomers for themselves and then for the company. And then I can take, I can replicate that. I can, you know, mentor another two or three and then get them going and mentor another two or three. And over time, we'll have developed a cadre of exceptionally good writers who are meeting the needs and demands of the readers. And they're supporting themselves and their families. And we're growing a business that's continuing to replicate and carry that process forward. Has COVID helped your business? Oh, man. In the first wave of it, not at all. It was brutal. We lost our, our daughter was in school. Had to go, had to pull out of school. Our son got pulled out of school. Uh, so it was very challenging because we work from home and now we had no childcare and we had two kids and we still have publishing deadlines. Um, so it was very challenging the first five months. Uh, the government, my government, decided to rain rain uh, money from the sky. You could go outside your house and do the bucket, and they were just money pouring into it. <laughs> Mad. We have printed off $6 trillion in money. It's just insane. So as a business, we took advantage of every opportunity we could to get government assistance and aid. Uh, and that did help our business substantially uh, because it allowed us to invest in the business and grow it substantially. Uh, as a small mom and pop shop, I only have access to so much funds and I only have access to certain levels of advertising and marketing capabilities. But when the government came in and backstopped me with some very large sums of money, I suddenly had access to marketing tools I didn't have before. And those marketing tools have allowed our business to increase by, well, we're probably up 150% this year alone from last year. Uh, and I anticipate that to continue to anticipate us being very close to doubling our income in 2021 compared to 2020 because of the help we received. The cash splash happened here in Australia as well, but yep. there were a lot of for businesses strings attached do you find mm -hmm. that in the u.s there are some ours. yeah there are some with ours so we had two types of loans we had one which called the payment protection plan or ppp and that was a forgivable grant essentially our loan uh, they took your salary and the, you and your employee's salary and did a two and a half times multiplier for two months and that's what you got 
And as long as you showed you kept your, your payroll going for those two months, it was forgiven. So that was a very easy one to get, and that one that one helped a lot. Uh, then there's another one called an economic injury distress loan, where it has those strings. Uh, there's two levels. There's one level where it is a, uh, a loan that's only tied to the business. And then there was another one where you could get double that amount of money, but you had to do a personal guarantee for that money. So I opted not to take that portion. I didn't want to take the personal guarantee. I just did the business guarantee. So I did that piece. Sci-fi is a big part of the book writing that you do do. What was now, the motivation to write sci-fi? So I, I am very much known for my military and espionage thrillers. That is still my bread and butter. That is still our dominant uh, stuff we write in. And I, I, I enjoy that very much. I personally like to read sci-fi. I've never written in sci-fi, but I like to read sci-fi. And I looked at it and said, you know, how can I find an entirely new audience that would be exposed to my military thriller writing that would like this? I said, well, why don't I essentially write a military espionage thriller in space? You know, do what I'm known for. And so we took our pattern, our process for writing really good epic thrillers and just made it in space and said, so we'll take place in the 2090s and we'll move forward. And we built this massive world and we have just absolutely crushed it in sci-fi. And I think we've crushed it in sci-fi because we wrote something so unique and different, different perspective, different way of approaching it that it just was new people hadn't seen it before and they really liked it and we were able to carry over our, our thriller audience right into our space stuff and then we found all these new sci-fi readers who were like wow this is totally new and different and they loved it um, and we also were able to put some a lot of marketing effort behind it too and i think that helped as well but a big key was just just like with the thrillers it's finding what's not being done and writing a series that fills that gap. That's a tough then, call, though, to, to, to find that market. How do you come up with those ideas? And the sci-fis of the 50s and 60s, a lot of the predictions and thoughts that these writers were coming up with uh, are now part of daily life. What yeah. sort of things well, are you coming up with? Well, so for when we write our, a lot of our thrillers, I, I almost like to consider myself a bit of a technologist in, in that I'm very tech savvy and into future technology. You know, again, I had an opportunity to pursue a PhD in computer science at Oxford, in cybersecurity, and looking at that. So, I'm very tech, I'm, I'm versed how a lot of you know machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to work and how we integrate that kind of technology because on the military side. When I was doing the interrogation side, that was one piece. But when I went to work on the contracting side, I went to work in a, in a field called identity intelligence and identity and biometric enabled intelligence, looking at and, and basically uh, tracking uh, individuals and people through their biometrics, whether it's a facial recognition, iris recognition, or fingerprints. We were uh, basically called tag track and locate uh, nefarious organizations and groups all over the world. So I, I was always big in integrating technology into our writing and in, in our thriller stuff. I looked and say, okay, well, where's the next war going to take place? Likely war going to take place in the next five to 12 years. What is the technology that's going to be integrated into it? 
And that's why our thrillers crushed it because we were so good at predicting where these things are going to be and the technology is going to be used. So then I said, all right, with sci-fi in 2090, not that far off, ironically, how are things going to play out? Who are the major players going to be? What is the technology going to be in use? How would I integrate it? And we just went with it that way. And I think that's why our series has done well, because our series isn't taking place two and 300 years in the future. It's taking place not that far off. Like my kids will be alive in the world that we're writing in. So that's where I think a lot of people are able to connect with it. Um, and we just integrated a lot of cool aspects of where we see technology is going to be. Like right now, Elon Musk is working on a, a neural link implant for humans to be able to access more of their brain. And there's other people who are working on things called biohacking to be able to help you unlock more aspects of your brain and be able to perform at a higher level. It's hard to say that in 70 years from now, we won't have conquered that and really unlocked that tool. So if we did, how would it be integrated into society and into the military? And so that's what I did. Uh, same with uh, you know the ships that would be involved, propulsion systems. Um, you know a lot of a lot of sci-fi guys don't integrate electronic warfare into their books and series, and I don't understand why. Because when Spaceship Y goes into the system and he's trying to attack Spaceship X, he has to use a targeting system to lock on to zap him with the laser. Well, if you're using a targeting system, why can't you electronically jam that? You can't in today's day with a missile. Why couldn't you jam an enemy laser system? But you don't see that written in a lot of books. So we wrote that into a lot of our books. You know, we wrote and said, okay, we encountered a, a more superior alien force. But what they weren't baking on was someone who really understood how to jam the electronics so their their weapon systems weren't as effective because they they couldn't burn through the jam and they had to get really close and then they discovered that yeah your your new armor system that can absorb and high energy frequency lasers and defray that doesn't do squat against a high impact kinetic weapon <laughs> and so when you run into a ship that's using magnetic rail guns and they're throwing these 24-inch slugs at you with high explosives packed in it, it's devastating because your ship wasn't designed to counter that. It was designed to counter lasers, not a kinetic kill weapon. Um, and so it just it brought a new level of realism to the books that I guess maybe hadn't been explored or looked at from that perspective. Do you get excited to just unleash your imagination on certain things? Every day, every day. When I, people say, well, how do you, what do you and get writer's block? I don't get writer's block. And here's why. If I'm stuck on this situation, I say, okay, I can't write this scene. What's the next scene I can write? And I'll go write that next scene. Or if I'm really stuck on writing scenes in, in the sci-fi, I'll go write scenes in the thriller books because I have those going at the same time. So I'll just bounce from one world to the next, one genre to the next if I get stuck. You know, so sometimes I might spend a week or two writing sci-fi. And then I might spend two weeks working on this Desert Storm book with Matt with Matt uh, Jackson. And then I'll go back and spend another month on the sci-fi. Then I'll go back and spend a, a week working on a military thriller with one of my other mentees. And so I'm constantly changing and moving around. And so one, I never get bored with what I'm working on because it's always evolving and changing. 
And two, I'm really getting to stretch myself mentally in the type of scenes and how you integrate things in um, and how you do a lot of that. I'm also, I also helped found a, a company called um, Authors AI and Binge Books, which is another uh, reader platform, kind of like Goodreads. But Authors AI uses uh, AI and machine learning to help evaluate and assess an author's manuscript. And what we're looking for in that manuscript is we're looking for the highs and lows in a manuscript. They're called writer beats or like an EKG and a heart. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Well, every single best seller should have a high or low beat, an EKG up or down, every 9 to 13% of the book. There should be a high, a low, a high, a low. And that's basically either an action sequence, a dialogue, an action, a dialogue, a dialogue, an action sequence. And that's how you build that. So when you dissect a manuscript and you look at that, you look and you say, okay, action, dialogue, action, or too many dialogues or too many action, you got to break it up. Then you move chapters around. And then you run it through the AI report and it looks through and, and it either confirms or tells you you need to make adjustments. Tells you where your highs, your lows are, where you're running, what's, what reading level you're at, different aspects of the report, how to tighten that up. So I use a lot of technology in my own writing to make me a better writer, but also to craft a better book. And it really comes down to understanding what makes a bestseller. And when you understand what makes a bestseller, you understand how to curate and do that. You can you can scientifically construct a book that is going to be a bestseller just based on certain principles and practices and it just it does it works i've got 24 books to prove it <laughs> it just works is it like writing music do they know when do you know when you've got a winner on your hands mm, sometimes yes sometimes no at the end of the day the one who's going to determine if this book series is a success is the reader so while you are spent all last year writing this book and you think this is the best thing since sliced bread you are ultimately not going to know until you publish it in the world and the world has judged you. Okay, well, I say this book is exceptionally awesome or this book is wanting and you have failed. And they'll let you know pretty quick in the reviews. So, you know, it, it's good. You need to have an idea of what you're writing. So if you're going to write in military sci-fi or military thrillers, you need to say, okay, well, what is already being done? Where are the gaps, like what is not being done? And what are the successful books? So when you look at like Red Storm Rising, Tom Clancy wrote that book in the late 1980s, been a wild success for you know going on 40 years. The problem is very few authors have tried to write a series that replicates it. So we did that with our, our own with our Red Storm series, where we talk about the Chinese and the Russians colluding to create a new uh, a new, um, you know, red world, basically, a new techno-communism, basically. And we took that and made it a very global perspective. When the war starts in Ukraine, it spills to Korea, and then it goes to Taiwan and the Pacific, then back to Russia, and then ends in China. So essentially, you're looking at the Red Storm Rising concept, but now you're in integrating in China and North Korea, you're integrating NATO and the rest of the world and you're making it global and you're integrating all the new technology that goes along with it. And you have a killer series. And that series, that series sold more than 150,000 copies in like a 12 month period. It did really well. But again, 
Nobody's replicated what Clancy did. Nobody's replicated what we did. So for me, I'm just replicating the same series, different scenarios, different people, different time frames because it's successful. It's kind of scary, though, that your predictions come close to be out reality. <laughs> well, I know, right? That's right. That's that's it's happening. Yeah. Well, we wrote this book called Rigged, part of the Falling Empire series, kind of like a second American Civil War type series. Now, I wrote that book in the I wrote out the concept for it in the summer of 2018. I went to a conference here in the US called Politicon. I interviewed a ton of people at Politicon, uh, both people who are on the left, people on the right, different different experts and folks. And I came up with all the material for that. And so I wrote that in the fall of 2018. And then I continued uh, writing that throughout the rest of 2019 and that book came out. We continued writing that series and I looked at this and I said, okay, as an intelligence professional, as someone who has seen coups happen in, in Ukraine and other countries, how would I institute or how would I instigate that in the United States? If I had no limit on resources, I had no limit on access to the people and materials, how would I implement it? And I wargamed it out. And then I wrote a book on that war game. And that's essentially what we did. And who knew the election would be revolving around mail-in balloting and fear of things at the poll. Now, our fear wasn't COVID. Our fear was uh, an instigated and organized terrorist attack uh, that would cause things to happen certain ways. And then an attack on the Supreme Court, which would null and void a court intervening to resolve things. Uh, and it all revolved. It wasn't about one political party over another. What it was about was about how easy it is for foreign powers to manipulate an election to their liking. And I say it's easy to do because America does this every year. America intervenes and manipulates foreign elections all the time. Hillary Clinton tried to do this in Russia against Putin, which is why he got really pissed off about our and started interfering in our stuff. Uh, we've interfered in the elections in Israel. You know, Obama sent his staffers and a bunch of people over to try to uh, help uh, to, to try to help Netanyahu's opponent win. And then, you know, that guy obviously lost and that created a little bit of bad blood between Obama and Netanyahu. Uh, we successfully instigated the coup in, in Ukraine against the elected leader there, which then turned into a, a multi-year long civil war that's cost the lives of thousands, tens of thousands of people. Uh, we instigated the, the uprising and the coup in, uh, in, in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood and with what happened in Libya. So. I looked and said, well, what if a bunch of people decided to do that against America? How would I How would I do it? And that's how we wrote the series, and that's how it ended up playing out. Wow. How is it working with your wife? Is it a good or a bad thing? Oh, at first it was tough because, you know, the book's your baby. You don't want to make changes to it. You're like, how dare you change that paragraph? I meant it to say that. She's like, well, this is stupid. But – you know, you, you eventually learn to just to say, all right, you're, I trust you with this. You're really good at this piece, so I'm just going to let you do it. And that's what I would end up doing. I let her have it, have free reign of it. And I write the book. I hand it off to her. I write the next book. And then when she's done with that, she hands it off to our professional editor. And then I'm done with book two, and I hand that to her, and I start book three. 
And then when book one's done with the professional editor, she works on making all the changes and fixing it. And then it goes to a, co a line editor to copy edit next. And then book two goes to our professional editor and book three goes to my wife and I start book four. It's an assembly line process. So we always have two or three books in the production cycle at any given time, um, you know, between releases and books that are coming out. So it's very much an assembly line, but I trust her with it. You know, she's very good at what she does. You know, wife's got an RN degree. She registered nurse. She's also got her own, her MBA as well. Uh, she used to work as a professional business writer for uh, T. Price Investments for a number of years while I was in Iraq. Um, so she's a good writer in her own rights. Um, I'm just more of the creative side for what it is we write, our genre. I'm just the subject matter expert for what we write. Does she bring an extra aspect to your books, do you think? Definitely. Definitely. So anytime we have female characters, my wife adds a whole another layer to that and does a much better job of writing them than me. We have the female to male interactions. She does a much better job of writing those pieces. Any kind of medical or doctor scenes, she's really good in putting a lot of the medical terminology and practices of how things happen. Um, you know, we're very technical in our writing with our details. You know, it's so like I have a beta team that consists of uh, active duty and former Marines, same with the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Uh, I have a handful of uh, Australian Army guys and Navy guys, uh, same with the British. So when I have scenes that are like an Australian scene or a British scene, it goes to that team of readers, and they handle those things. They help me with those scenes and crafting that to make the terminology right. Uh, same with the Marines, same with the armies. Guys, we write a tanker scene. I wasn't a tanker, so I'd, I'd send to my tanker guys, and they would write all the dialogue for the tank. Um, and it makes everything very realistic when you put it all together. The PTSD is something that's very close to your heart to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Writing about uh, Desert Storm with Matt Jackson, how important has that been for you? And I know it's also important for Matt. Uh, how important is it to write about it? So for me, I think it's... It's easier to get through a lot of these the, the, those situations about war when you write it out, when you're writing about it all the time, because it's, it slowly desensitizes you and it doesn't affect you anymore. And that's really the point you need to get to is where, you know, it, it's not crippling you emotionally or mentally anymore. Um, and that does take time, unfortunately, but this is part of the therapeutic process. And... I was excited to work on the, the Desert Storm book. You know, I, I talked with Matt about this. We were talking about what he was going to write next. I said, you know, the way you become a successful writer is you find a gap in the market that's not being filled. And when it comes to, like, alternate history, no one has written an alternate history about Desert Storm. Wow, that's there's a great a concept. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about, well, what happens, what would have happened if Saddam had not stopped in Kuwait? What if he had just said, screw it, I'm going to cross right over to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and just roll it all up? And he could have done that. There was nothing stopping him but himself. So our series is going to look at what would have happened if that took place. And then Matt's unit, he was a command, he was a uh, battalion commander in the 101st during that war. So we're going to actually follow his unit deployed into the war there to actually fight and stop it. So we're going to follow Matt as a commander fighting in this war with his battalion, which is going to be great because it's all his character, it's all his platoon mate, his platoon guys, his company commanders, 
all of his people he served with in the war are now going to be serving this fictitious war with him fighting in this war. Uh, so that's going to be really cool. And then we also looked at the other aspect of what if the Soviets in their waning days decided to give the world one more FU and decided to give the Iraqis a lot of intelligence and support, encourage them to, to just go for broke and provide them with extra equip military equipment and help them out. Uh, and, you know, as a last hurrah, uh, and decide to do that. So we integrate in some of the Soviet aspects of it, of them helping them. It's still Iraqis fighting it, but we introduced like a lot of Soviet help. Um, because what I didn't know when we were doing a lot of this research is during the Reagan years, Reagan had identified the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union, which was actually oil. And President Bush had accelerated uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union by targeting the Soviet Union's oil sector. And what they had done was they collaborated with a lot of the Middle East countries to artificially depress the price of oil, which deprived the Soviet Union of oil revenues to keep them afloat. Uh, it's kind of like what we've been trying to do with the Rus with Russian and Putin right now. Um, and so the Soviets know this is going on. Part of their like, well, screw the Americans and this whole thing. We're just going to provide the Iraqis with a lot of additional support to go in, cause havoc, cause the price of oil to spike to 50 or $70 a barrel or more, and maybe this will stave off the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ultimately, it doesn't for the series, but it makes for great fiction. And so that's how this is all going to play out. It's great to see you so passionate about it. What drives you to get this passion? Do you mm -hmm. just telling the story or making things, you know, the way you would like to have seen them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all part of it. I mean, just having a creative mind. It's just asking a lot of what if. And I think those were some of the skills that made me just a really good interrogator was I had a, an, an active imagination, was willing to always ask what if, what if, what if. And I was always drilling my prisoners with that and saying, okay, well, if you're not doing this, well, what about this guy? Or who else is doing it? Or what about this? It was never give up because he's not going to talk. And, you know, I've translated a lot of those skills then into writing then, you know, persuasive writing. You know, you need to be a persuasive speaker as an interrogator to convince and coax information out. So how can you leverage some of those same communication skills in your writing to write stories that people are just willing to pay money to buy and willing to buy pre-orders and everything else that you produce? That takes a certain level of skill. And it's not something you're necessarily born with. It is a learned skill that you get better with over time. It's like riding a bike or baseball or golf. You don't wake up and become a PGA golf master. You train and you train and you train and you practice. It's the same with writing. Your first few books are going to be terrible. But if you work with a, if you could find a good mentor and work with a really good editor, they can teach you to become a very good writer. And then it just becomes a matter of practicing. I love the saying from Stephen King, and I've brought it up many times, that the best way to write a book is to sit at the typewriter and type. It sounds like you don't need that sort of motivation. Uh, every now and then you do. I mean, I still get frustrated with it every now and then. Like right now, I'm, I'm in the process of moving to a new, we're building a new home. So I'm dealing with the financing for the loan. As a small business owner, financing for loans is always challenging. So I'm dealing with that. I've got three kids under eight. Um, you know, 
we're you, you've got that. I've got four mentor mentees I'm working with. I've got an editor. You know, I it's just there's so many things pulling at me. It's becoming very hard for me to actually get time to focus on being a writer. <laughs> you know, so I'm struggling a little bit with putting pen to paper and getting things done right now. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to sit down and do it. I mean, I work seven days a week. I don't take a lot of time off, but I have a mission and a purpose for what I'm doing this. I'm not going to do this forever. I'm right now building a company. I'm building a, a process, and that takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. But if I'm willing to put in that time and effort now, then I'm going to have this incredible business in another you know, two or three more years uh, where I'm not going to have to put in as much effort. You know, at some point, my own writing will slow down. My wife and I will drop down to one book a year instead of four or five books a year because we will transition much more fully to the mentorship uh, process of helping these guys become better writers and help them create better, better books. And, you know, we can do that because I'll have five or six guys doing that. And, and these five or six guys will be producing two books a year or three books a year. And you multiply that across five or six guys, that's a lot of books getting published every year. Uh, but I'll have built that process. It just takes some time and perseverance to make it come to fruition. A couple of the books that you have written, I think, are pretty important. My mum has PS PTSD and my dad has PTSD or daddy. Yeah. Um, how important and how successful in helping kids that are dealing with parents with PTSD yeah. of these books being? I think the kids' books we wrote have been very helpful. Mind you, I don't really sell a lot of them. We certainly never made very much money off them, but that was, wasn't really the purpose. Um, I give a lot of those books away at the VA and to their uh, you know, veteran causes and different groups and things like that all the time. Uh, but the problem is little kids don't understand why mom or dad acts this way. They think that they did something wrong or they said something wrong or that it's their fault. And the, the thing they need to know is it's not their fault. It's not them. It's that mommy or daddy went through a traumatic incident or, or a series of, of, of situations and they are struggling in, internally with how to process that. And I think if you can teach kids that, they will have a new appreciation for their mom and dad and they will have a little more understanding about that and they won't grow up thinking that they are the person that's at fault or they did something wrong and that's really really important uh to, to be able to do that like my kids see that you know my son thinks that the picture is about him and my wife my daughter thinks the book is about me and her you know so they immediately identify with this stuff and kids do it all the time you know i give so many of those books away to people to just put that message out there. How does uh, the PTSD rub off on kids? Are there a lot of kids that are damaged by PTSD, do you think? I, absolutely, absolutely. I think what happens is their, their mom or dad is struggling and they end up taking that anger, that frustration out on their kids or their spouse and then the kids see it and they react to it. And a lot of times the kid's like, well, why does my dad hate me all the time? Why is my dad always angry? What am I doing wrong all the time? You know, and they start to develop that complex that they're the problem, that they're at fault, that they did something. And the fact is they didn't, but they don't know that. And when that takes root as a child and it gets reinforced and watered over years and years, it grows into a seed of bitterness and it just takes root. 
and it affects them and then it affects their kids that they end up having in their relationships and it becomes a generational thing. Um, and so it is a very big problem. Um, and I think as a nation, we need to do a much better job of addressing that, but not just with veterans. Veterans aren't the only ones to deal with PTSD too. You have a lot of people who are victims of crime and sexual assault that have a lot of these traumas too. And I think as a society writ large, we just do a very poor job of helping people deal with the mental traumas. We like to just give them some medications and counseling and send them on their way. And all we're doing is masking the situation. We're not trying to address it and try to fix that. And that's what we need to focus on because then we create a better future for these people and a better society. What's the book that you still want to write? Oh, man. So there's the books you want to write, and there's the books that make money. <laughs> sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not. There's one book I would love to write. My wife says, no way. Don't do it. It's too risky. It probably won't make money. And she's probably right. Everyone loves a good guy. Everyone likes the good guy to win, right? Well, what if the, what if the good guy didn't win? What if the bad guy wins? You know, part of me wanted to write a series called, you know, I won't say the name of it because maybe I will one day, but I wanted to write a series from the perspective of what if America was the bad guy? What if America decided to go on an imperialistic binge and just say, you're either going to work for us and be a, an American satellite or we're just going to conquer you. And we just used our military power and our industrial might and we just went just game on <laughs> you know with the rest of the world and the world has to somehow unite figure out how are they going to unite all these factions to combat and fight against us and we're just not slowing down you know we've got our mindset we're going to say enough's enough no more policemen we're just going to take you all over and it's going to be the america way or no way and just it'd be kind of an interesting series but that probably as cool and fun as it might be to write, it would not probably make money because nobody would want to read something like that. You but know, there's been know. a lot of comparisons of the American Empire with the Roman Empire. Do you still yes. see that happening? Definitely. I think I'm, I'm, I love my country. I, I'm willing to fight and kill for my country. I'm still willing to fight and kill for my country. But I'm telling you, I think we are unfortunately on the decline um, the question is, will our country implode in the next, you know, three or four years or will our country implode in the next, you know, two or three decades? But I don't know how much longer America can hold together when right now our factions are not able to talk to each other. Our factions see each other as literally physical enemies that they want to fight and kill each other. Uh, our tech companies have determined that half of our country is not worthy of having a voice anymore, and they want to silence that majority. I believe in free speech and freedom for everyone because I think when we have free speech, even if it's offensive speech, as long as we can we can hear that speech and we can counter that speech with better ideas and better better um, better ways, we can defeat it. But when we suppress speech what ends up happening is we move that to the underground and when that negative idea or that bad ideology has to go underground we are unable to challenge it we are unable to disprove it as being bad 
and it ends up growing and growing and at some point it's going to rear its ugly head and you can't stop it because you won't allow it to be discussed you know and i think that's a problem that we face now where the tech companies have determined what they want to determine as free speech i mean when our tech companies can censor this the president of the united states but will actively support and condone the ayatollah of iran dictating and chanting for the death of an entire an entire ethnic group of people and country there's something wrong when our tech companies will adhere to the whims and the in the requests and orders of the chinese government which is a, a, in all reality a modern day third reich and we see nothing wrong with that where have we come as a society i mean people are upset because of trump's tweets but people aren't saying squat about xi jinping and the chinese government which actively is running right now concentration camps and they're killing people because of their religion they're they're sterilizing these people they've got slave labor camps going on and we're saying nothing about that it just blows my mind when you uh talk about that look what they've done in tibet yes tibet is a great example and, and look what they're doing with the with the uyghurs and that whole part of china i mean most of the world's sell, uh, solar panels and solar production is being done with slave labor in the we in the province where all the Uyghurs live. And we're like, oh, let's go green energy. Yeah, let's just have a bunch of people who are in slave camps working on our green energy for us so we can feel good. I mean, seriously? Would you really want to support green energy and have your solar panel if you know this thing was being built by people who are literally being worked to death? I just don't get that. You've got kids, you say, three kids under eight. What do you worry about their future? with say China and that sort of thing and what's happening in all, the world? All the time. I worry that, you know, China is becoming this, right, so China's Belt and Road Initiative is quite nefarious when you really drill down to what it is. China will come into say Australia and say, okay, we're going to help you build this new $5 billion port facility. And then we're going to help build new high-speed rail for, for Australia. The problem is you're going to have to give a 51% ownership stake in that port, in that rail, in anything that they built, 5G networks, communications, everything. You're going to have to give them 51% control. Well, now that they have this control, if your country says something China doesn't like, they can come in and say, hey, we want you to retract that. We want you to support our agenda. Like, well, we don't agree with that. Well, that's okay. I think the port's going to have a little bit of a problem going forward. And next thing you know, one of your provinces is being economically devastated. Or maybe your 5G network is interrupted. Or maybe your high-speed rail network's interrupted. That's the problem. China's coming in and financing deeded infrastructure projects all over the world. And they're taking control of those nations' foreign policy. Or at least their economic policies. And that's happening under our watch. And when China has enough countries like that, they're going to have enough satellites to do whatever they want and nobody can say no about it. Nobody can say anything about it. It's kind of scary, though, and I've mentioned this before, about they essentially sold Darwin Harbor to the Chinese and we fought to keep it from the Japanese and we've essentially sold it to the Chinese. Do you think America, Australia, we're selling out? I think there are a lot of corporations 
in power in, in, in right now in, that are selling they're selling access and selling this for a short-term gain because you have to understand a lot of our politicians who are in on this too they get the political donations and you know maybe they don't benefit directly but like joe biden's brother-in-law wins a contract for a hundred million dollars to do x y or z you know it all goes to nepotism all goes to someone in the family and the challenge is they're all seeing this from a short-term gain of well the next five or ten years we're going to make this money what they're not seeing or not caring about because they won't be alive and around for it is in 20 and 30 years what happens next you know they don't care about that and at the end of the day their families are going to be so well insulated with money and finances that they're going to be immune to a lot of the problems so what do they care you know, what do they care if the rest of us are, are left having to deal with the pieces of this? They're not going to have to deal with it. And that's the challenge. That's the problem we're, we're all facing. Your books, as you say, you've got 24 books. If someone wants to find out about them and is inspired as we've listened and, and chatted, um, yeah. if someone wants to check out your books, how do they do that? Um, so you can either find us on Amazon. We are exclusive on Amazon. So you can download all of our books for free with Kindle Unlimited. Um, and then we also have our website, uh, FrontlinePublishingInc.com, uh, and you can find our stuff on there, and it'll link you to all the, the sites that you can buy it as well. So that's the, the easiest way to find us. Are you finding that uh, you're getting penetration further around the world as you develop? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's a concerted effort on my part, too. I spend a good chunk of my advertising dollars uh, in Australia, the UK, Germany, Japan, India. Um, I've gotten to a point now where about uh, 35%, 40% of my uh, monthly sales are international. Um, I'm in the process of having, well, I've got three books translated in German. I'm in the process of translating my sci-fi series into Japanese and Hindi as we speak. Wow. Um, my goal is to get to a point where my international sales uh, encompass about 60% of my royalties. Uh, I really I really am focusing on building an international brand uh, because I think uh, the world is so, too big of a place to just focus domestically on the United States. Um, I want to focus internationally. And when I write my books, you know, all like my military thrillers, I integrate Australian units, I integrate British units, Japanese, I integrate units from all over the world into our conflicts because I believe in a global, you know, making a global community like that. And I do the same with the sci-fi. We have, you know, all the books are made so that way they're kind of cross-cultural uh, in sci-fi especially. And so everything's you know, we got Japanese characters and Russian characters and Chinese characters and all this stuff like that. So that way it's very integrated globally and it works really well. When is the next book coming out? Uh, so next book is book four uh, of the sci-fi series, um, Into the Chaos. That comes out in the end of June. Um, so my wife is desperately trying to finish that to get it to the editor by the end of the month. And then uh, that one comes out in, in June. And then we got the next uh, thriller Book three of um, Monroe Doctrine comes out. Uh, I think it's slated for end of September or early October, but we put that in there because we're moving, so we want some flexibility. Our target date internally for ourselves is to try to get it out in the end of August or early September. Um, we usually release a little early. The book's written. It's done. It just needs to get to the editing process, so it's already done. Do you need to set uh deadlines for yourself is that important absolutely you know it's a deadlines man you're not going to make anything you're just gonna be, you're gonna procrastinate 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 
and I am the king of procrastination. <laughs> in the writing process, how much how much do you get actually written in a day? It depends. So today we launched a Kickstarter for our sci-fi series. I'm creating a, an art book, which is going to have 95 of these really cool images. And every image depicts uh, a scene from the book, a scene or a chapter in one of the three sci-fi books. Um, so that's a really kind of a cool art book that we're creating. So that kicked off today. So half of my day has been sent, spent promoting it and talking with other authors to promote it, getting the newsletters sent out and handling all that piece. Um, I spent probably about an hour working on finishing a scene for book four uh, for my wife so she can get that in there. And then uh, the rest of the evening is going to be spent working on uh, book five, a couple of the scenes to get book five done. Um, so that's kind of the schedule, at least right now. I try to get about three to five hours of physical writing in a day, but there's a lot of like social interactions and marketing that also chews up another two to four hours of the day as well. How many words do you try and get? Do you try and get a, a quota per I day? Yep, I have a daily word count. My target is 3,000 words a day. Some days I get lucky and hit 500. Some days I get on a tear and I'll hit 13,000. Wow. So it really depends on the scene, what's going on, how well things are flowing, if I'm being interrupted by my kids a lot. <laughs> um, you know, so today, after my kids go down, I'm going to really try to get on a tear. I have a big battle sequence I'm writing in book five. I think I should be able to get on a really good tear with that, and I'm hoping to knock out about four or 5,000 words tonight. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure, and I appreciate you giving us some time from your very busy schedule to share a little bit of the insight into you as an author so james rosane thanks for joining us over the bonnet yeah no and i i appreciate being able to talk with you guys down in australia i have a handful of australian super friends uh readers and whatnot who just love our stuff down there and you know again i i mark the heck of our stuff down in australia it's a, it's a great country i really enjoy i look forward to getting down to australia one of these days it is top of my bucket list to get down there.